really um, giving a sermon. I'm talking about literary approaches to the Bible, and so it's more about the Bible than from the Bible. So I was going to do that from this side. So y'all should just move this way. Just kidding. So, yeah. Okay, so I wanted... Recording Jeff, in progress. Jeff said I'm supposed to be funny, so we'll see how that works. You guys just laugh a lot for the recording. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And I'd feel more like I was teaching my class if somebody could get out their phone and watch a YouTube video while I'm talking. That would really help out, so... Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Bible as literature, and since I like to talk, that turned into about, I think, three weeks of conversation, so we'll start with this one and see where it goes, but uh, this first section is kind of an overview, so it's a lot of information, um, and if you have questions, you can ask, and I might ask for some samples from you in the middle, so be prepared. So, when we... Speed drills. You guys do sword. How many of you did like sword drills as a kid? We called them sword drills. Yeah. It's Luke 10. You can start now, so everyone can be there when we get there. Okay. So, the first step to studying the Bible um, really is reading the Bible, and that seems kind of obvious. And sometimes we get overwhelmed and worried about not doing enough or not doing things. But really, just like all literature, the first thing you have to do is read it. So if you took a literature class in school, you're like, oh, just take the spark notes, right? And you could get maybe the information, but it's not really the experience, right? And so the first thing you have to do is read it and get some familiarity and a basic comprehension of what's happening. Maybe not all the, the nitty-gritty or all the mystical details or things like that, but just like, hey, there's some guys and they're doing this stuff and then... Jesus guy comes, and they, well, he dies, wait, what happened, you know, so there's some exciting parts, and then you might wonder, well, wait, didn't I just read that story when you get to that part of the Bible, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the reasons for that, so hopefully the first step is everyone is reading the Bible, and multiple times, because if you also took a class, uh, like a literature class, you would realize that the teacher certainly hopefully had read the book multiple times, and if you had to write the paper on it, you had to go back and look at it again, right? So you could get by a little bit with just the first read. But the reading and the rereading helps us layer meaning and connection. Um, and that's because the Bible is not just a straightforward legal document. So we kind of want it to tell us what to do, and then we can do it, right? Um, but legal codes are not fun or easy either, but that's not just what we have here. And it's not even just a straight-up theological text, Right, which is what we often try to make it. Okay, I'm going to find all the right theology in here. And that is actually relatively, if God wanted to give us theology, he could do that pretty straightforward. He's omniscient. He doesn't need to tell us any stories about that. He can just tell us what it is, right? He's omnipresent. Okay, there we go. God did this. God wants you to do this. Like That would be very straightforward. A couple hundred pages, we could probably get the whole thing done. And you would know all the things you're supposed to know. But that's not how the Bible is given to us. So I think that should cause us to ask maybe why the Bible's not given to us that way. And I'd like to suggest that's because there is a lot of things we can communicate, but that we don't understand fully. We don't experience them until we have to really look at them in different ways. And so the Bible has set itself up, God has set the Bible up, as an experiential document, right? And so it's not just about knowledge. So if you have no knowledge, you're not going to get anywhere with the experience, so I'm not downplaying knowledge, but it's not just that, right? We all know, um, and I'll, I've said this before to my kids, you know, sometimes like, oh, I already knew all the things in that sermon or that class or whatever. 
Well, did you do all the things really well from that? Sir? I mean, I don't. Like, I know lots of things. Love your neighbor. That's a good one. I'm not very good at doing it. So the experience piece is a whole different um, level. But the Bible is set up to be experiential, and it invites us to participate in understanding the story, the image, the idea. So it's not just about repeating it, but engaging it. And so there's an activity required of the reader. We call it active reading or critical reading in scholarship. But it's that there is a reader that has to be involved and if you just have it come to you, that's not all there is to it. And we believe, of course, that the Holy Spirit helps us with that active reading and that critical reading, right? That there's God's, God's helping out on all the things. So he gives us the word, he gives us knowledge, he gives us a human mind that helps to understand, and then he gives us his own spirit to really understand. But I want to give start with the Luke passage as kind of an example. So Luke 10, 25 through 35 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So how many of you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan? So you know the story, right? And you probably even know the moral of the story. But I want to look at the whole trapping. So if we start in paragraph 25, uh, paragraph verse, okay? It says, A lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's got a legal question. And Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So actually, even in this conversation, Jesus is not giving him an easy answer. He's like, well, you tell me, right? And there's a few reasons for that if we know a little bit more of the context and what they're doing. That's a very common teaching strategy. So you might use it with your kids. Well, what are we doing? What do you think we're doing? Oh, it's Sunday. We're going to church. You know the answer, right? We often ask questions we know the answer to. So that's part of what's happening here. But the, the lawyer answers, rightly so, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He knows the answer. It's a straight answer. Took like a sentence, right? And it actually could be shorter, because the heart, soul, strength could just be your whole self. We could just make that shorter. But that's not how the Bible gives it to us. Not the only way it gives it to us. It does, right? And we did we sing that earlier, right? And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Easy, right? Story's done. But wait, we haven't even gone to the Good Samaritan part, right? Which is the part we all remember from this passage. So wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Well, that's a pretty easy question to answer, too. Who's your neighbor, right? And you're like, oh, the person who lives next door. It's done. Move on, right? End of story. No story, right? But here it is. And it's those of you who are like, no, no, I've read this one before. I know that that's not the answer. The answer is everybody. And the guy who pulled him out of the ditch, right? So even that, though, we get the whole story. So Jesus is not going to tell him that. He's going to tell him the story. And so he replies and says, A man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. When he came to the place and he saw him, passed by. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay it. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So we could unpack that whole story, but even I'm not even going to do that yet. Just the next question, he said, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus said, go and do the same. So instead of answering the question, 
the neighbor's the one to whom you show mercy, which is everybody, right? He gives him the story, and he makes him answer it himself, right? And there's a learning in that process that's different than a straightforward telling. And so that's part of why we see that these pieces um, are given to us purposefully, um, and sometimes the Bible does give straightforward answers. A lot of the law and the legal code is straightforward. It often still incorporates narrative and poetic language, even when it is a legal document. Leviticus, a little tricky right when you get there. Still way more colorful than an American legal code. Okay, so if you have to read one of those, it's even, it's even worse. Okay, uh, But the Bible is not just trying to give us information. It wants us to know and understand. And then, as Jesus says here several times, to do what we understand. So the question is, well, what are we, how are we supposed to read it? If there's different kinds of stories or poems or legal code, how do we know how to read each piece, what we're supposed to do? And so that's kind of where I want to start. There's two basic principles to start that, and one is context and two is genre. So context is a lot of things, but primarily here I mean like the historical context of the book. So um, we want to know about the cultural ideas, idioms. Ideally, we would all speak the original language. If you ever took like Russian lit or something, you, you're, I'm sure your professor moaned often about how it's not the same in English, right? It's never the same. Um, but even idioms, right? So idioms are when we have a, say, a nice way or euphemisms, you know, these kind of sayings that we have where it's a nice way of saying something else. So if we say someone in the Bible sleeps with their fathers, doesn't mean they're taking a nap. Doesn't mean they're sleeping around. It means that they're dead, right? So, but we could just say it's dead, but we don't use those phrasing. So, if we don't understand that, then we won't even have the basic knowledge, let alone kind of layering it in. So, those are important. Uh, a big place where we can see historically that that was caused a lot of problems with the Bible's discussion of slavery, and their biblical slavery is an entirely different cultural concept than what. American slavery is, and when we might actually still say both of them are wrong to this day, trying to use any kind, um, as many Americans did you know, before the Civil War, trying to use biblical passages about bond servants and slaves in regards to African kidnapped slavery. It's not the same, right? So that we have these problems of just understanding. And you probably had that problem if you took a Shakespeare class, right? Not did you not, you, missed, you didn't miss the symbol. You're like, wait, that guy left the stage. Why is there a bear? You're just like, I don't even... I don't even know what's happening. So, not because Shakespeare's even complicated. I mean, Shakespeare was written to be performed in the theater to a bunch of illiterate men who probably had had a couple of, like, drinks. So, it's not that he's complicated. It's that his language is old. And we don't use that word anyway, uh, that way anymore. So, we don't use the words always the same way. So, that's a whole other thing. And I'm not going to teach you how to do that today. So, that would take a lot more study, a lot more time. So, we're going to set that one aside. Um, But part of that that maybe takes a little piece is who who is the Bible being written for at one point? Um, and so we all, it is in some ways written for all time for all believers, right? So it's written for us. But it wasn't written like to American Christians in the 21st century, which is why it doesn't talk about Starbucks or, you know, um, who you should vote for because it's not the context, right, that it has. It, there, there's no democracy, right, in the Bible. Only theocracy and monarchies and some anarchy in a place or two, right? Um, But that's about it. So a good example of that, just so you can see what I mean by that, is the examples of Kings and Chronicles. So my husband, he basically ignored sermons as a child by listening to Kings and Chronicles, like reading them. That's what he did. He liked to read about the fights. And so um, 
probably he's got more knowledge of those books than anyone in the room. But um, and who I'm always like, who was the king of who? And he's like, oh, that guy. He's like, let me tell you. Um, I don't know what the sermon was about, but he knows about the weird name. Uh, but Kings and Chronicles are very similar. So if you've read them before, you're like, why do we have both of these? They're kind of the same. They're like the history of Israel and Judah after you know the kingdom split. Well, part of the reason they're different is because they have a different purpose because they're written to different people. So they're not actually conflicting with each other. And actually, they give very little contradictory information. They just pick and choose, just like when you tell a story and someone else tells a story. You pick and choose different details um, based on your purpose. Are you trying to, like, get some information, trying to make somebody laugh, trying to make somebody cry? You know, what are you trying to do with the story? So Kings is written um, about 586 B.C., and it is written to um, Israel in exile. And it's kind of like, this is why you're here. So this is the parents sit down of, like, so how did you get here? Um, and so it's really, it's really kind of a downer. Right? You see all these horrible kings, everyone's living, you know, for themselves, and you're like, well, this is how we wound up in captivity, so let's just remind ourselves of how we got here. It's not that God just stuck us here because he doesn't love us. It's because we kept doing the things that we were asked not to do. But Chronicles is written about 100 years later, so 450 B.C.-ish, and it's written as Israel's coming back. And so its purpose is not to kind of remind them of their sins, but to remind them of their religious goals and duty and God's faithfulness and to encourage them to reinstate those. So that's where we find like, hey, whenever the Torah goes missing, it gets found again, right? It keeps coming back, right? Those stories. And so they spend a lot of time on the Davidic line. So David and Solomon are much more highly focused upon um, and God's faithfulness in rebuilding things that get lost because Israel's been lost and they're going to get rebuilt. Um, and they leave out some dicey business, which David and Solomon have lots of dicey business. If you want to know, read Kings. It'll tell you all about it. Right? That's the expose versus the kind of nationalistic <laughs> promise of uh, Chronicles. So that's just an example um, of where we see the, the audience and the purpose, right? So how we tell the story. It's not just, those are just histories, just histories. Right? But if we know anything about history, how we write it matters. So the historical narratives and even the, just the histories that are straightforward listings of genealogies and things like that have different purpose. And that sometimes explains why they contradict themselves or they're there at all or why we have two, right? Because they're doing something different. And so part of understanding that then leads into the genre. So genre is just a, a literary word or we use it for film, a lot of things. It means the category of the thing that you're studying. So um, if you go to see um, a rom-com and you get a Stephen King movie, you're going to be, like, upset, right? Like, that's not what you're in for, right? Because you're like, no, I came for a romantic comedy, not a horror movie. So those are genres, right? Um, if you go to see some indie flick, you want it to be deep and meaningful. If it's a, if it's an action film, you're not expecting very much. You just want to see some stuff blow up, right? So that is really what genre is. Um, and why it gives you a piece of what to expect, right? Should I expect long, beautiful passages about the stream? Is this a Tolkien situation? Um, or are we just going to, like, start right in with all the, the crazies, okay? So what are we doing here? And that's a genre question. So there are several ways to parse out genre in the Bible. Um, and you can find all kinds of different ways of breaking up the books in the Bible into chunks that kind of make more meaning. Uh, we have one, like, in the kids' room in the corner that has them. But often those don't do it entirely by literary genre. Um, they're sometimes by the time period. So we put the Torah together. That 
works in some ways, but the, actually the Torah has multiple genres, which is why when you are like, I'm going to read the Torah this year. I'm going to read the whole Bible, start to finish, Genesis, let's go. And you get to Leviticus, and you're like, oh. it was so easy in Genesis. You're like, let's go to the Gospels, right? It's because actually you're looking for the narratives, right? So the Torah has a mix, and the Gospels have somewhat of a mix of different genres. So I'm going to suggest a few and then spend a couple of weeks looking at narrative and poetic language particularly. So narrative and historical often go together. We like to tell histories through stories, um, and so that's kind of a natural fit, and that would include things like Genesis, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, etc., etc. And the Gospel and Acts. Acts looks a little bit more like those historical narratives. The Gospels are kind of, um, they often get put as their own genre, their own category, but really because they're biographies, so they're not national histories. They're Biblical histories are often full of these little mini-biographies. We know about these characters, but the purpose of the Gospels is solely to tell the story of Jesus, right? So it's a little bit different than Genesis, which is giving you this big um, heroic epic, really. And so they're kind of a narrative historical. We'll talk about those. Uh, There is, like, the law, uh, which is, like, parts of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, which has its own code and actually is really, just as a side note, super interesting to compare it is a legal code to its contemporaries. That would be a new cultural approach to the text, um, which would be to say, well, what do other legal codes look like at the same time? That are because uh, people besides the Jews, besides Israel, have legal codes then. Um, poetry and wisdom books. So I'm going to put those all into kind of a poetic language category because each of, wisdom literature has its own quirks. Um, like Proverbs has a lot of its own quirks, um, but they're genre-based. Just like a poem, right? We expect, okay, poem versus narrative for genre. Are we going to get regular lines? Are we going to get the little lines, right? Are we going to see, like, good punctuation? Those are kind of genre pieces for poetry. Um, That includes Psalms, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Poetic language is used throughout the text, but those are kind of the big poetry books. Um, Another category that we'll talk about it, it uses both narrative and um, poetry. Would be visionary literature is what it's called sometimes, or prophecy and revelations. And so um, you may not understand all of it when you read Revelation, but it sounds cool. Like you're like, oh, this looks interesting. There are all kinds of visuals. You're like, if you're an artist, you got lots of things to do. Same with Daniel. You're like, oh, what is this wheel with? Like, there's all kinds of pieces. So it's very visual. Though the prophets tell stories as well, so they use both. Uh, the epistles. Uh, so an epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. So the epistolary books are the the letters of Paul um, and other people in the New Testament. And so they have their own genre, right? How you write a letter is different than how you write an email or a text, even though those are all kind of together for a genre. But certainly if you're reading a letter that feels like a novel, it, it probably is a novel disguised as a letter. But you hopefully didn't get, if you get an email like that, you just stopped reading, right? So that's a genre piece too. And there's other little genres sprinkled, sprinkled throughout. There's different types of poetry specifically, and there are different, like, like the parable itself is actually a really interesting, like, subgenre that we see a lot in the Gospels. Um, it shows up a few other places as well. So there are a bunch, but like I said, we're going to kind of focus on narrative techniques and poetic techniques and kind of how they help us focus on a few things as we're reading. And so... The reason to do that, again, is just that understanding genre helps us understand the tone and interpretation of the text. So when we know how we're engaging, we can kind of get a little bit more out of it in some ways. So with that, quick overview, and then we'll like dig into this more in the next couple of weeks, is that with narratives, 
Um, narratives are stories. Narrative is just a fancy word for story. And so the histories, the narratives, we look for things just like high school English class. Sorry about that. We're coming back. So we have plot, character, foreshadowing, etc. Um, again, like when we look at Kings and Chronicles, there's not a lot of technical discrepancies, but they tell a different story. So the choices that are made, what do we include? What do we exclude? What do we expand on? What do we not expand on? What word choices are used or repeated? We could dig into all that. But Plotting, setting, and characterization are the three we're going to look at. Um, the Gospels, same thing, um, but because they're biographies, they have a little bit of a more impressionistic feel, and just like all biographies, they focus on, you can't give every detail of everybody's life. It would be 50, it, well, in Jesus' case, it would be 30 years. It would take 30 years to read the Gospel than if you had the play-by-play, right? So they choose what to sort out, and that's always done with the author's intent. So sometimes that's because the author just is interested in different things. John, particularly, is much more mystical and has kind of interesting connections. Uh, Luke is very much like the doctor. He's very pragmatic and very Greek kind of in his thinking, uh, which is why I think often we like Luke more. He makes more sense to us. Um, he's more thinks more like we do in some ways than John might. Um, and they have different audiences, so sometimes you're not going to... Um, if you've ever had to talk to young people and you try to make a like a pop culture reference and they like look at you like you don't know what you're talking about, then you know you have not connected to the audience because your illusion or your symbol, they don't know what you're talking about anymore. So I've taught for like about 20 years and I've had to change them up a little bit. I'm like, you know, I can't use the same material again. Um, but the literary piece here is really that even the histories are not just historical facts. Okay, they're narrative histories, and so they are asking us to listen to the story, and in asking us to do that, they are asking us to understand things about the nature of God, the nature of the world, and the nature of ourselves. So the story has a theme or an idea or these pieces that your English teacher would have tried to dig out of you, probably awkwardly with a big gap while you waited to see what they were going to tell you the answer was. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Um, how the stories, like how we can look at stories for a little bit more of those connections. And then with poetry or poetic language, um, obviously the poetry books use that, but good figurative language um, uses the concrete to make the abstract known. So I can say, oh, I'm very joyful, and you know the definition of joy, and you understand probably kind of what I mean, but that doesn't help you if you're not, if you've never been joyful to understand joy, right? It doesn't help you to understand hope if you're just attaching whatever you think it means. And so by using concrete examples, we help the reader or the audience know what we mean when we say these words, which is really important distinction because how those words are used in the text are often different than how we use them in American context. Um, But they also just invite us into experiencing something that words can't fully convey, right? So we don't we don't understand all these, these hope and the joy um, of these things. So even uh, that we listened to the Hebrews passage earlier, right? And it's very short, right? There's all these people, and it's going to connect back to all the stories. So it's going to connect all the narratives to make a point later. We'll talk about that. That has to do with memory. Um, but it gives these concrete, specific examples. Oh, what did these people give up? Well, some of them were tortured, but some of them were... Um, brought back from the dead. But some of them did this or that. So it gives some very specific examples so that if you're not fully aware of who all those people are, you have that. And if you are aware, you remember all of those things that it's giving you. And 
if you have personal experience with any of those things, how much more powerful then would they be if you know someone who had... Um, maybe you have not received back your children from the dead, but the loss, right? You can imagine. So um, I want... What time is it? How much time do I have? Jeff was... I don't even know how long that means I've been talking. So, okay. Um, so I'm going to give you a quick uh, activity because I have to have an activity. So I want you to find a piece. Yeah, it's in the after class. So um, I want you to find a piece of poetic or figurative language in the Bible. Anywhere you want, go. If you were paying attention earlier, I gave you some hot spots. But if not, uh, you can probably open any page and find something that is figurative or poetic. You can't give me the whole thing. It's a specific example. We're going to make it concrete instead of abstract. Class guys, everyone's more quiet. No one wants to go first. <laughs> Darissa, you want to read the portion for us that you're looking at? So almost nothing in that passage actually is happening, right? So none of it's concrete. I'm just not getting, like, seriously not letting me flip the page here. I have two. Well, you can pick anything. Right. Hold on. Oh. Okay, so Darissa had used Psalm 42, which is the section that this says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Maybe that actually is happening in the last little bit. Maybe somebody's actually asking that. It's probably a rhetorical question, but just in case. But... When we have the as the deer, right, that's poetic language. If you remember back to your literature class, it's a simile, right? So it's like this. It's like a deer. And if you don't know anything about deer, that's not really helpful for you. Um, so a, that's a concrete image, though. And it's a pretty, the Bible actually uses ones that are fairly uh, universal in nature. And sometimes when they're not universal, good Bible translators will add in, well, you don't have deer by you, but it's kind of like a this, you know. And so there's a similar piece. Um, but a metaphor then to say my soul pants for you, your soul doesn't do anything of the sort really, but it's that kind of longing is being embodied. Um, and then my tears have been my food. It's a lot of hyperbole. Psalms are like real emotional. David's got a lot of feelings, okay? And non-David that writes part of them also has a lot of feelings. So the Psalms are a good place to look for the poetry. And you can just, if you pretty much pull up anyone, you'll find a few. Um, and think most of us know at this point you don't literally take you don't take things literally right you're like oh there's actually like a deer um but it's hard sometimes to tell with certain pieces whether they are or not so that's one understanding of the context is is that no one is thinking this is literal necessarily um and sometimes we're not sure 
we're like, especially when we get to the the prophets and the like, is there really like a literal dragon? Is it a dragon? Like, I don't like. Maybe it could be. Uh, probably not. That seems like a metaphor. Could happen. Could be a real dragon, but probably it means someone who's draconic. So, um, so those are kind of pieces that we look at. I just needed one sample, so you have to wait, son. Um, so those would be ones. So poetry is going to give us figurative language, these strong images, and trying to convey the emotions through like more physical experiences. Because emotions by themselves, we have words for them, but that doesn't really convey them fully. And so the metaphor, the image is meant to help convey them. Uh, proverbs are their own subgenre, and I would like to pull out a couple of kind of proverbs techniques that are used a lot. Those are just like. Um, Oh, I don't know. Like, if you took a poetry class, you know, haikus are a kind of poetry, and you're like, doesn't feel like a poem to me, but it's very much... So it has its own rules that if you're not familiar with, it just looks like a weird sentence. So um, that would be the same with the Proverbs. We're like, why are the Proverbs, like, doing this? I just said that. Why did they say this, like, five times? Like, there's a reason often. There's several stru- underlying structures that if you... Like, if you're Japanese and you see the haiku, you're like, oh, it's a haiku. It makes sense. It feels like poetry to you. So to them, the Proverbs would feel like something very specific, even though to us they don't. Um, The Psalms still feel like poetry, and that's partly in how they choose to, um, the translators have chosen to present them on the page. They look like poems to us, right? That is not necessarily always how they're exactly presented in the original language, but that's done for our benefit. Um, and like I said, so the prophecy and apocalyptic literature, the visionary literature, is heavy with symbol, metaphor, and dramatic imagery. And the epistles use them a lot as well. So part of the epistles are very legal in their nature, and they just tell you, like, rejoice. Like, here's a command. Like, they give you commands of certain sorts. Um, but then they're also going to use a lot of examples, um, which sometimes involve narratives, and sometimes those, these metaphors of, like, it's just like this, Right. Even this happens or this happens. And so we see a lot of those. And they definitely rely, um, just like we saw in the Gospels in Luke, on a communal knowledge heavily on the Old Testament. And so we'll talk about that. Um, Real quick. I think I can do it today. You can't leave, so there you go. So. Um, So general close reading strategies that work for almost everything. Um, And this is where kind of that communal memory and pieces will come in. So this is like three things that help you understand why your high school or college English teacher always saw weird stuff. And you're like, it's just a rocking horse. I don't know what you want it to be. It's just this, right? So three things that set critical readers or professional readers apart from kind of just people who know how to read um, are memory, symbol, and pattern. And so I'm just going to suggest those three things for you and that those are something that you can think of and develop your ability. So that's like basically what being an English major is, is developing those skills. And also, I mean, it's it's true. I see my GE students and they're like, I don't know if there's any symbols here. And the English majors, they got like five things. They're like this. First of all, they're not afraid to just guess because they know that sometimes works. But also that you just get used to it. Just like a mechanic looks at a car and sees the problem and you just see a hot mess. You're like, I don't know. You know, so you, what? Memory, a symbol, and pattern. So memory um, is the reader's familiarity with context and culture and text. And so this isn't meant to necessarily be a reader response idea that the Bible means what it means to you, but that different readers bring different knowledge. And that with that, one, sometimes the text expects a certain reader, so it expects you to know what it's talking about. Otherwise, you're going like, to miss the joke, right? It's an you know, inside joke um, or a reference. 
Um, and it also means that there are sometimes reasons we see different things or in certain times we see different pieces or we see connections that someone else doesn't see. So if you've never read the story of Joseph, you're not going to see a connection between Jesus and Joseph because you don't even know he exists, right? So just that kind of knowledge that builds up in memory. Um, and that relates to things outside of the text, but particularly, I think, with the Bible within the text. So a lot of literary scholars point out that every book in the New Testament references the Old Testament. Um, and there's just a general saying in exegesis that's in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. And that this basically means that they need to be understood together. So a little preaching to the choir here. Like, I don't think any of you are, like, tearing off the first half of your Bible or anything. But there are, you know, impulses in Christianity that downplay one or the other, right? And so um, that really both of those pieces are connected to the memory and the things that are being said because the writers have that memory and they expect that their readers have it and so they make shorthand comments. So if I say, oh, I'm, you know, going to go, I'm drawing a painting and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a forbidden fruit. I'll make it be an apple. It isn't literally an apple. It never was an apple. I didn't really have apples probably in the Garden of Eden that way. But like, we all know. And so then when you see Twilight and he's got an apple, you're like, oh, he's the bad guy, right? Like, so you just, you can tell, like, there's these connections, even though some of them are a little bit, like, inaccurate. Um, you know, Snow White, don't eat the apple. Like, the apples are bad fruit. They do not keep the doctor away in literature. So, um, but you don't know that, right? So if you've not heard those stories or seen those tales, you don't build up that same connection. So we see that very heavily from the Bible to itself, but also to other cultural Pieces. So when we looked, um, one of the songs earlier talks about the full armor of God. That's not the kind of body armor we would see on a police officer today, necessarily. It's very much a Roman body of armor, because that's, it's like, oh, everybody knows what a Roman soldier looks like, right? You're like, yeah, everybody knows, <laughs> right? But no, but like everyone would have, and so that. So that's a piece that even in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have understood some of those. They talk about the helmet of salvation and other pieces, Paul also doesn't make up the armor of God. It goes back. So there's like all these pieces, which is what makes people hate English teachers and feel like they can't read the Bible. So I'm not trying to say that, but just that that is something that's built. Um, and the first year English student or the, you know, Dr. Stokes professor, like you can't feel like there's, those are going to be the same people. And we're not the same people. Everyone has those different things that they build up. But there's an intentional uh, way to build those up. And that we all can do that. So that's memory. Um, And then symbol, I'll do real quick. Symbol is something concrete that stands in for something else that's generally more abstract. So the flag means freedom, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it is both literal and figurative in a text simultaneously. And that's where often um, people are like, well, it's just a this. Well, it's just the crown is just the hat he's wearing. Well, he is literally wearing it, and it may just be a function of the story. But if someone, the author, pointed it out, then probably it also is supposed to signify that person's relationship or their authority, right? If they give us the the things that they mention, the physical things that are mentioned are often done so for a reason. Um, We have all kinds of symbols if we look at the ark, right? And sometimes people get weirded out if they're visitors about like, oh, what are you doing? It's just a symbol, right? You have symbols everywhere. The cross is a symbol. That's not the cross Jesus died on. I don't want to break it to anybody like... It's not even the right kind of wood. It's the wrong size, you know. But it's a symbol. It reminds us of something else. It stands in for something else. And the fact that we chose to put it there tells you something about the story that we're trying to tell, right? And that's true of all of our furniture and all of our things. So symbol is really important in religious imagery and ritual, but also in literature. Um, And so 
uh, that I would say most early readers or like younger readers tend to say, well, that's just there because it's just part of the story. But you just have to remind yourself there's a reason it's a part of the story. Like that's the English teacher bit there. And then pattern is connected to both of those things. So pattern are repeated settings, characters, plots, symbols, forms that create or emphasize meaning. And certainly when we have so many different pieces of the Bible, it in some ways has one overarching or really like kind of two overarching threads. We'll talk about that. But it is its own unified piece, but it also has all these little pieces. So if it keeps coming back up, it probably means something. So when we read with my students, they're like, why are there so many birds in this book? I don't know. That's a great question. You should tell me why are there so many birds? What do the birds mean, right? So the author really likes birds. That's probably not what it means, okay? So, um, but we have these repeats. And so the repetition creates patterns that we notice when we're paying attention for symbol and when we have better memory. Um, but the patterns also create meaning for, okay, this is the way it generally goes. And then also when a pattern is breached. So when it always goes this way, but then it stops. And we see all kinds of patterns. We'll talk about that next week in the Bible. A specific kind of pattern in the Bible or like kind of a repetition um, is a type. And so that's just like kind of a more theological word that gets positive or negative press. Um, we talk about archetypes in literature, like bigger types. But a type is kind of a pre-patterned. Um, so when we see something in the Old Testament that looks like, hey, that's kind of foreshadowing of the New Testament, that's a type. So Joseph is a type of Christ. Um, Moses is a type of Christ. David is a type of Christ. Like, they're not like a kind of Christ. Like, that's how we would use the word type, but they mean kind of like a pattern, like a pre-pattern of it. Um, and so we see those a lot. Um, with the festivals, with the feasts, there are types of things that happen with Christ and then types of things that happen with the Messianic return. So there's like a repeated pattern often for us, particularly of Old Testament, New Covenant, and then return. Like we see the same patterns. Because God knows like we weren't going to get it if he just told us one time, right? And so he's like, I'll say it at least three times, okay? And maybe more. And so I hope that are some, that is some, a few things to think about. Um, as we're going, and like I said, next week we'll talk kind of more about the narratives and stories, and then the week after about poetry, or if it's short, maybe both together, but based on this experience right here, I don't think it's going to be short. <laughs> so, um, but looking for how do we interpret what's the, what's the context, what's the genre, what's the purpose. Um, if you have a nice study Bible, a lot of times study Bibles will have some of that information, which is sometimes correct or sometimes not super like you know that's that's a that's not the bible itself that's a commentary on the bible but often it'll at least tell you like this is a prophecy this is a prophet right or this is who we think wrote it and so those things can actually be really helpful and if you don't have them like there's wikipedia like that kind of stuff you can find really easily on the internet now if you're like what kind of book is this or the different genres you could explore that um, and then for ourselves just cultivating memory symbol and pattern as a way to get even more out of the reading that we're doing so, are there any questions? So, oh, sorry. Oh, I'll let Trevor do it. You could. So, scripture is what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, from God, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody was inspired. Yeah. So, was it God's intention that each book?
be written specifically in the form or pattern. You know what I mean? Um, or is that the human 